We're just going to open up quite a massive passage of Scripture today. Um, we're, um, we're actually, can you believe it, almost at the end of our Just Jesus series. We've, we, uh, it's going to be a 13-week long series, and we've only got two more after this one. We're going to finish on Easter Sunday, and it's going to be something quite amazing. And we've just, I feel like we've, we've had a look at like the different facets of Jesus uh, as we've kind of every single week just had a look at something different. And today, uh, we're looking at Jesus, the Lord of destiny. All things find their source and their end in him. So let's jump straight into this passage in Revelation. It's Revelation 1, verse 4 to 20. It's quite a long passage, so just bear with me as um, I just read through this, and we, we're gonna then unpack it together. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, if that's how you say it, sorry if not, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice who was speaking to me and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Wow, what a passage. Um, <laughs> yeah, pray for me. Um, <laughs> when, I was, um, when I was 12 years old uh, and my sister was around 15 years old, um, she got into a... a actually a really bad relationship with a guy who treated her really badly. And uh, me and my sister were really close, and we still are. And so she literally told me everything that this guy had done to her. Um, and 
when I heard it, I felt incredibly angry, but also incredibly powerless to do anything about it. I, if you think I'm skinny and scrawny now, you should have seen me when I was 12 years old. Um, there's no way I could stand up to this guy at all. Anyway, my dad found out about what had happened somehow. And um, all of a sudden, I saw a side of him that I'd never, ever seen before. I'd definitely seen him angry before because I had made him angry many, many times. But this was different. His daughter had been severely mistreated, and we were about to see a different side of his love. He got on the phone and got through to this guy, and I can't really repeat what he said in church. Um, but what was clear that in un- no uncertain terms, this guy knew that he was not safe <laughs> anymore. We had to hold my dad back from going out to this guy's house because we knew that that would probably end in some sort of prison sentence. The reason I tell you that story is because this passage that we read is the start of a book of Revelation which shows a dimension of Jesus which might surprise you. To be honest, the passage we just read isn't actually that heavy, but the, it's the start of a description of Jesus as our judge and our defender, the one who is coming to destroy all evil. He hates evil. He hates sin that destroys our lives. And the rest of Revelation is this apocalyptic vision with this um, rich, vivid biblical symbolism which shows Jesus basically on a rampage against evil once and for all, wanting to get the hell out of us and to get the hell out of his world and bring in his new reign on a new heavens and a new earth. I wonder if sometimes we see Jesus a little bit one-dimensionally, maybe in your mind and in your heart, he might be like a, a big friendly giant. Um, but maybe he's powerless. Maybe the, reac- the reaction of my father bears no kind of resemblance to the Jesus in your mind or in your heart. Maybe you're on board with Jesus being loving towards you with his gentleness and his tenderness and his compassion and his forgiveness and those are all true attributes of him and we should never go very far away from those at all. But does, does he have a righteous anger towards anything and anyone? Maybe from your own experience through relationships you've been in, um, people should have stood up for you and they haven't. And maybe your view of Jesus is one also of, of someone who's apathetic or unresponsive to an injustice that you faced or shame that you've experienced. Maybe like myself, you can read a passage of scripture like this and then you look out, out at the world and you say, God, I don't see you ruling and reigning like this kind of kingdom kind of portrait looks like in scripture. Maybe I'm quite happy with and comfortable with Jesus that fulfills my needs but doesn't encroach on the people and the places around me. I'm okay with Jesus meek and mild The lamb, the sacrifice, the friend of sinners, I particularly like that one, but definitely don't give me judgy Jesus (laughs) riding on a white horse with his robe dipped in blood. I'm not sure my friends could, could kind of stomach that one. Well, if any of those reactions resonate with you, you're not alone. The churches that John was preaching to and writing these letters to in around 95 AD 
we're in a similar positions, if not a lot worse. And I'm hoping that today this passage will help us to see Jesus as the ultimate king of kings, the one who will wind up all of history and confront evil head on. This image of Jesus, I think it's massively significant for us today. So let's get a quick kind of lie of the land of what was going on around this time. Most scholars believe that this John is the same John which was Jesus' closest disciple, who wrote one of the Gospels, who wrote three of the letters in the New Testament. And the time of writing, it seems, is after the the reign of Nero, uh, the emperor, and this was an awful time for Christians. There is some evidence that Nero would, at times, lash Christians to crosses and smear them in pitch and burn them alive and use them as human torches. Tradition records that Peter and Paul were probably executed under Nero's reign. But this letter seems to be written in the time of Domitian, who was, who was after him. But even from the letter, you get the idea that persecution was around or that it was kind of ramping up again. And to call Jesus Lord or King in this kind of environment was like a death sentence, really, because only the Caesars are worthy of that title. And because of this, we find some of the churches crumbling under the pressure and advocating a policy of compromise. In some of the letters to these churches that we read later on in in Revelation, you get the impression of a culture of apathy and um, material affluence and immorality. And I wonder really whether the Western church um, in our day can can also actually be tarnished with that brush. But it's into this kind of environment that John receives this revelation from Jesus. This prophecy has come to encourage them in their suffering. It's come to encourage them that God's kingdom, though they can't see it, ultimately is still at hand. And it's come to correct them against this compromise and instead encourage them to patiently endure. I can just imagine John anxiously strutting around on this island, really worried about these churches, these churches which he knew so well, people in there that he dearly loved. He'd spent so much time with these people, showing them the beauty of Jesus. And I can imagine him just saying, God, what would you want me to write? What would you want me to say to these people to help them to faithfully press on and endure? Jesus knew exactly what they needed. What they didn't need was a set of rules again. They all knew that that didn't work. They also didn't need a pep talk. They needed a vision of their future hope, a destiny-shaping vision. They needed to know that what they were enduring now was attaining for them a future glory. That Jesus is really who others had said that he was. They needed to see Jesus in his glory. And even John needed to see this image of Jesus. John, who knew Jesus better than anyone else, he knew baby Jesus. (laughs) He knew Jesus the child. He knew Jesus' brothers. He knew Jesus' mother. He was Jesus' closest disciple. If anyone had seen the humanity of Jesus, it's, it's this guy. He'd seen him tired and excited and sad and thirsty. John was the only one of the 12 disciples at Jesus' trial at the foot of the cross when all the others had deserted. Yet Jesus knew that even he needed more than this image 
to live this Christian life to the full. And he knew that every church from then on and every believer also needed to see a clear vision of Jesus in his glory. To see where all this is gonna end up. What are we destined for? You see, there's no way that this Christian faith could have outlasted every worldly empire if Jesus was just a good Jewish man, a wandering preacher who tragically and wrongfully died by crucifixion. It was the most contemptible and excruciating death imaginable. Only, only slaves should be punished in this way according to Roman intellectuals of the time. Many felt even tainted just looking at a crucifixion. Who would follow someone like that? Who would bear to be tortured even to death and to count it a privilege for his sake? See, I would hazard a guess that anyone who has ever suffered persecution of this nature for his sake has a clear view of Jesus in his glory and therefore a clear view of their own destiny. So what is this view of Jesus? What is it that makes John fall as though dead? Well, I think we can easily miss it with our sort of 21st century modern non-Jewish eyes. But this whole book is steeped in Jewish prophecy. In actual fact, almost every line in this book seems to be a hyperlink to the Old Testament. Actually, um, there's a, an amazingly beautiful image, I don't know if we've got that, um, which shows that the Bible was the first hyperlinked text of all time. Um, it is the most breathtaking piece of literature, whether you're a Christian or not. This basically is an image of, at the bottom there's every single verse in the Bible. And the lines that are long, the, the, the proportion of the length of the line is proportioned to how many times that verse is cross-referenced with another verse within the books of the Bible. There are over 65,000 cross-references in the Bible. Can you believe that? I mean, we, will, we can spend the rest of our lives reading the Bible, and that's what I plan to do with my life. So if, if anyone ever says, yeah, I've read the Bible, you can say, no, you haven't. But one of the most profound cross-references in all of Scripture is John's revelation of heaven compared to Daniel's revelation of heaven. Back in the Old Testament, in Daniel 7, we get this remarkable, similar vision of heaven. We get images of four beasts representing four different kingdoms. And most scholars would suggest that it's a prophecy about the, the four biggest empires of antiquity, Babylon, Greece, Persia, and Rome. And in this vision, during the time of each empire's rule, we have this image of the ancient of days, Yahweh, seated on his throne, which symbolizes that he has authority and power over all of them. And over time, these beasts representing these empires are stripped of their authority and power. It's an incredible vision. Daniel's vision is so much like John's, you would initially just think, well, John, you just copied it. <laughs> Let me just show you some of the similarities, and then I want to just hone in on a few of the differences, which I think will be important for us. So in Daniel 7, verse 13, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And further on in Daniel, it says, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from something around his waist. (laughs) His body was like topaz. His face was like lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like gleamed of burnished bronze. And his voice was like the sound of a multitude. Can you see the similarities? We've got the son of man, Hair as white as snow, eyes like fire, dressed in priestly linen, feet like bronze. I mean, it's, it's just remarkable. But John will have known Daniel's prophecy, probably by rote. It's not as if he kind of got this revelation, quickly wrote it down, sent it to the churches. The churches were like, John, great letter, thanks so much. I just need to just point out, I think you've plagiarized Daniel. It wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. John will have realized as he was even in the vision that something extraordinary was going on, that Jesus was the son of man that Daniel had prophesied. Instead of these similarities being weakened, the fact that they're similar, it's actually that they are more profound because it's showing a fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus had used this term son of man during his ministry. It was an obscure phrase, but it was very intentional. So when the Pharisees said to um, were kind of upset with Jesus because he he started forgiving sins, only God could forgive sins. Do you know what he said? He said, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. We often think that Jesus just used this title to veil his true identity until the proper time. Like he was kind of keeping the mob at bay from kind of crowning him Lord and and kind of revealing his deity. In actual fact, the Son of Man title was pointing both to his deity and his humanity. So according to Daniel, the Son of Man is a human being who sits on a divine throne and everyone worships him. He's a God-man. Jesus comes on the scene 500 years after Daniel. 500 years of waiting for the human that can finally attain to God's standard of humanity. And then here he is. Jesus came, claiming to be the truly human one. The rest of us could only manage subhuman, fallen humanity at best. Jesus was the firstborn of a new humanity. Jesus came on a mission to confront the beasts and overcome them. But he wasn't just coming to overcome Rome to the annoyance of the crowds and even his disciples because that's what they wanted. No, he came to confront the beast of our sin in our lives that was penetrating to the very heart of humanity. The sin that seizes power from other people, the sin that leads us into depravity. Jesus resisted the beast of sin. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms but he resisted them. And he started banishing the beast from people's lives and then teaching us how to rule over it. How? In the most profound way. He gave up his life to ultimately rule the beast of sin and death on our behalf. 
See, the cross looks like this torture device, and it is. It's so disgusting that at this time, you, you felt like you were actually unclean by even looking at it. But this cross was actually his enthronement. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its best, or its worst, shall I say, on him and overcoming it with his divine life and his love. As Tim Mackey, a scholar, says, Jesus' execution was actually his exaltation. Jesus was the one whose kingdom would trump all of the other four kingdoms. It would be a kingdom, a global kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. Did Jesus kind of arrive at that by accident? No, in no way. He knew exactly what he was doing. Before this very moment, he said at his trial, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. So when these churches read this vision from John, they knew exactly what John was saying. The reign of a new king had come. Not just some future time, but right now. It was a revolutionary. It was like sedition of the highest order. Jesus inaugurates his kingdom through his crucifixion. It wasn't his defeat, it was his enthronement, conquering evil by dying for his enemies. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So hang on, history isn't just spinning out of control? No. He sees with eyes of blazing fire. He's before every situation and he'll be there after every situation because he's the first and he's the last. He has proven himself faithful even to death and he'll continue to be faithful even when we are not faithful. The reign of Rome like faded within a millennia just like the predecessors. Babylon, Persia, Greece, just as Daniel had predicted. And nothing has come close to the influence and significance of Jesus and his kingdom ever since. Which has annoyed a lot of historians and intellectuals. Um, Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, but the uh, secular historian writes, how was it that a cult inspired by the execution of an obscure criminal in a long vanished empire came to exercise such a transformative and enduring influence on the world? Well, simply, it's a heavenly kingdom and not an earthly one. You see, John's vision is slightly different to Daniel's vision. And these differences are very significant. I just wanna run through the three that I can see here. Firstly, Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. He has defeated these two enemies, death and eternal separation through his death and resurrection. How will this kingdom become a reality? As we die to ourselves and are found in Christ. We're gonna get a beautiful image of this in a couple of weeks on Resurrection Sunday. We're gonna be baptizing some people and you're gonna see that visually. But not only dying to self, you see, also being willing to die for Jesus. And hear a pin drop. <laughs> because you see, he holds the keys of death and Hades. 
If that is what Christians believe, then nothing can stop this kind of kingdom. Who could possibly stand against a kingdom that not even death can stop? If our destiny is confidently to be ruling and reigning with the king of kings forever in a new heavens and a new earth, then if the people of that kingdom really believe that, then it's an unstoppable kingdom. Secondly, he wielded a sharp, double-edged sword from his mouth. What a weird image. This is talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The gospel has gone out to every tribe and tongue calling for submission to his rule. This kingdom has not triumphed because of earthly forces, though some have tried to do that in the name of Jesus, but ultimately through good news coming in flesh, in Jesus, and the truth of that gospel being so powerful as to change our very hearts. That's how this kind of kingdom destroys evil. And so if our destiny is to have our whole identities changed through this good news and to then be part of a kingdom that sees everyone else's identities changed by that good news, then that is an unstoppable kingdom and a kingdom that will bring good to this world, heaven on earth, some might say. Finally, he held seven lampstands in his right hand. The images get more bizarre, it seems, as we go on. Seven, you see, was a, a sign of completeness. So I, might have, I should have actually said at the beginning, we saw in the passage it said the seven spirits around God's throne. It can seem odd to us. What it really means is the sevenfold spirit, which means the, whole, the full nature of God before the throne. So seven is a sign of completeness, and the right hand of God is a sign of his authority. So what does this mean for us? Well, the lampstands are the churches. He founded the church, the agent of his kingdom, and he said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. This kingdom is not territorial, it's spiritual. This kingdom lives within every believer, and Jesus' agent for the kingdom is the church. Even though many Christians and many people have lost faith in the church, and actually unsurprisingly, People have been disappointed by the church, let down by the church, seen hypocrisy in the church, moral failure in the church. Jesus will refine the church. He will prune the church. He will remove every branch that's not bearing fruit, but he will never give up on the church. And we mustn't either give up on the church. We need to show Jesus to the world through the church. And so this revelation of John's was calling Daniel's prophecy into fulfillment. He was basically saying, yep, Jesus is the one. He is the king. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. He's calling us to courageously partner with him to usher in his kingdom, to be ready to lift up those ancient gates and let the king of glory come in. You see, one day Jesus is going to be hailed king either with tears of joy and ecstatic praise, like something we have never experienced. I mean, I loved that song earlier. You could have probably seen me dancing down here. Just like, I mean, it's gonna be like that on steroids, right? I mean, we just won't know what's happening. But for some, it'll be with fear and trembling and mourning because every evil heart, every corrupt empire will be judged perfectly by him. He will leave no stone unturned. 
So let's not worship Jesus for anything less than his fullness. I realize that's pretty heavy. I want to actually take us now into a time of, of taking communion together. And then what I want to do is once we've done that, I just want to leave some time for God to speak. <laughs> I believe that the Holy Spirit speaks in moments like this. And I'm just going to throw out a number of things which I believe are on God's heart and, and just see if God wants to just do something in you today. So let, why don't we stand together and uh, let me just practically kind of help you guys uh, with how we're going to do this. I'm just going to grab one of these myself. So we have um, some tables down the front here. I think the gluten-free option is on my right. Um, and also there are tables behind the sale. So if, if a table's closer to you at the back, then, then go and get it from there. What I want you to do... Oh, gluten-free's at the back, sorry. Thanks, Andrea. Um, so pick up the two cups. You, you'll... Don't be worried if you can't see the bread. It's literally under that one. So just go and pick up two cups. So why don't we move now? Let's do this as quick as we can. And uh, yeah. Hopefully you're making your way back to your seats. What we're doing first, we're going to just take the bread and we are remembering that Jesus' body was crushed for us on a cross where he died, but where we, he was enthroned <laughs> and exalted because he defeated evil and sin once and for all, and death. And so we enjoy taking this now and appreciate what he's done for us. Let's eat the bread together. Jesus, thank you that you didn't stop at anything you didn't stop at how irritating and stubborn we were. You didn't even stop when they lashed you. You didn't stop when they put a cross on your back and you walked up that hill. You didn't even stop when they pierced your hands and feet and blood dripped down. Not, not even at that point did you stop because of your love for us and your obedience to the will of the Father. And now you're enthroned and we love you and we thank you. Let's drink the cup.
just want to just keep remain standing. Let's just be in a place of just being open to what God wants to do. Holy Spirit, I pray that you just come now and just reveal the glory of Jesus to us. You see, when Jesus comes into view, things have to shift. Ways of living, maybe ways of thinking, maybe ways of behaving. Fear has to go when Jesus comes into view. What is he wanting to shift now in your life? Just take a moment with him right now. Maybe close your eyes and just be in a place of being open to him. His eyes are like blazing fire. This God sees you. There is nothing hidden from him. But if you've enthroned Jesus as king and savior of your life, then he calls you righteous because he has defeated sin and death. He calls you his son, his daughter. But he is committed to rooting out evil in your life. Let him do it. Let him who sees you change you. Maybe for some of you, you've reached the point of saying, Jesus, I, I think that you are who you said you were. And if that's the case, I want to have what all these other people seem to have, whatever the cost. If that's you today, please come and have a conversation with me or one of the team here. We'd love to pray with you and help you and support you on this journey of faith. Maybe God is wanting to fill you with courage. Maybe God is giving you a view of his kingdom and your role within it. Maybe you've sat passively and comfortably. Holy Spirit, come and fill us with courage right now. Maybe you are anxious about your destiny. What am I gonna do after uni? What am I gonna do after school? How am I gonna face my boss tomorrow? How do I parent a teenage kid? <laughs> Let the King of Glory come into view right now. Are you struggling to endure? Do you feel as if you're swimming against the tide of the culture around you? Everyone else is sleeping with their girlfriend or boyfriend and you are just struggling with the pressure to not give in as well. Maybe you have already. The King of Glory is here. He's coming into view. There is redemption for you and there is power for you. Are you sick of seeing evil regimes picking off the weak and the helpless? I believe God is giving some of you a renewed zeal for his justice and he is filling you with new courage but also the capacity and wisdom to see his kingdom come to the marginalized, the weak and the vulnerable. I feel for some of you, he's changing your priority list today. Maybe you're struggling to forgive and forgo vengeance against someone who has done wrong to you. Ask the King of Glory to come into view right now, our perfect judge and our defender. He will leave no stone unturned. Holy Spirit, come and bring healing from past hurt. God, help us to surrender those hurts to you. 
and be our perfect judge today. And I believe one, I've, I really believe that for some of you, he's breaking your heart for the church. I believe for some of you, he's about to fill you with a passion for God's church like never before. The church is meant to have teeth, <laughs> but not in a triumphalistic and judgy way, but bringing courageously justice and truth and grace into other people's lives. He is going to orchestrate, I believe, opportunities for you to have a greater impact in his church. I believe he's calling some into leadership. He's calling some into new opportunities of serving, which are gonna have groundbreaking change for the church. Just allow the Holy Spirit to touch you in this moment. Just wanna give you permission just to move around a little bit. We're gonna go into a time of worship in a minute. But actually, if God has spoken to you about any of those things or anything I haven't even said, I just want you to have permission to move around. We've got a, here on my left, we've got some space for you to respond. We've got our prayer team. I want our prayer team, if you could just come out even now and just be ready just to come alongside someone and, and just pray with them. For some of you, as you even worship, you just want a bit of space to just kneel before the King of Kings and, and just do some business with God today. Look, our prayer team are coming ready. Just don't, <laughs> I wanna just break the myth of thinking that as you mature as a Christian, you respond less. <laughs> That's completely wrong. As you mature as a Christian, you respond more because you are, continue to be open to what he wants to do in your life. The Holy Spirit's never gonna, never gonna stop working on your life. So come and respond to him today. And finally, just before we go into a time of worship, I just wanna just say God might start something today, but he's not necessarily gonna just finish something today. The Christian life is a journey of discovery and he will remove layers, sometimes over very long stretches of time. Sometimes he'll dramatically bring a transformative step today and that's fantastic. But for other things in your life, it might take a long time. That's okay, okay? Let's just be open to what God wants to do in this moment as we go into worship.